Welcome to the podcast of Called to Communion. This is podcast number 18. My name is Brian Cross, and I will be hosting this podcast. Our guest today is Jason Stellman. Jason was born and raised in Orange County, California, and served as a missionary with Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa in Uganda in the early 90s, and then six years in Hungary. After that, he went to Westminster Seminary, California, where he received an MDiv in 2004. Upon graduation, he was ordained by the Pacific Northwest Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, and called to plant Exile Presbyterian Church in the Seattle area where he served as pastor from 2004 until resigning in the spring of 2012. He is the author of Dual Citizens, Worship and Life Between the Already and the Not Yet, and The Destiny of the Species, which is forthcoming from Whipfenstock Publications. His blog can be found at creedcodecult.com. In 2011, he served as the prosecutor in the trial of Peter Lightheart, in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery. He currently resides in the Seattle area with his wife and three children. He was received into full communion with the Catholic Church on September 23, 2012. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. I know that many of our listeners and readers, both Catholic and Protestant, are intrigued by your story. The question that rises is in most people's minds is this. What would cause a Reformed pastor who takes the Reformed faith so seriously that he is willing to lead the prosecution in a heresy trial against the well-known and well-respected theologian Peter Lightheart to leave his pastoral position, give up his career, and seek full communion with the Catholic Church? Before you answer that question, I'd like you to step back and, and let, let you share with our listeners a bit more about, about your background. So tell us about how you came to faith in Christ and your time associated with uh, Calvary Chapel. Um, well, when I was 12, my, uh, we were sort of nominal Christians in my family. I have a younger brother and my mom and dad, and we'd go to church, uh, you know, Christmas and Easter and, and maybe a couple more times, but that was it. And then for some reason, and I, I probably should ask her because I don't know the answer, but my mom decided, you know, when I was 12, it's time for, for you boys to, to get some religion. So she, uh, she sent us to Awana, which is a, a Baptist youth program that a lot of people are probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I first made a profession of faith, um, mainly because they read us this story about a little boy who missed the rapture. And he... <laughs> He came home from school and everyone was gone, you know, and his pet was gone and his family was gone and he was all alone and, and you know, the it had the intended effect because it scared me and and so I got, got somebody to pray a prayer with me and they baptized me uh, there at the Baptist church. Um, but then I started going to Calvary Chapel uh, about four years later when I was a junior in high school um, and, and that's when my faith sort of you know, became real. Mm -hmm. You know, it became something that that I cared about, and I started reading the Bible and 
going to church regularly and all of that. Um, and then, you know, with, when I was with Calvary Chapel, I served as a missionary over in Africa uh, in 91-92 and uh, in Europe from 94 to 2000. Um, and, you know, and that, that brings us to about 11 years in Calvary Chapel, hmm. uh, much of which was great. I mean, I look back with real fondness uh, at that time in my life when the Christian faith was brand new. So what made you transition to the Reformed faith? Well, it was, it, was, um, it was a verse in Romans, really, a verse in Romans 3 that, you know, I, of course, had read plenty of times. Uh, it's the verse that says, there are none who seek after God. Hmm. Um, but for some reason on a, on a Sunday, uh, I, I, it struck me in a, in a way it hadn't done before. And so I started going through this kind of logical process of, you know, if, if none seek God, then none can be saved, but some are saved, so hmm. therefore God must seek them. But not all are saved, so therefore God must seek some in a, in a, in a peculiar way. Uh, you know, and these conclusions kind of started to, to arise. And I got a hold of uh, a couple of books, uh, Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is kind of a turnoff, uh, A.W. Pink, <laughs> especially for someone who's da- you know, putting his toe into the Calvinist uh, pool, mm-hmm. uh, pink is, is kind of hardcore. Right. Um, but uh, thankfully, I, I got a hold of uh, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, which is a sort of kinder, gentler version um, that, you know, that really sort of convinced me. And it took a, about two or three weeks of, of sleeplessness and wrestling with, with the issues uh, before I was convinced. You know, but it's funny to look back now, because at the time, it, that seemed like such an upheaval, you know, mm-hmm. three whole weeks of, of struggling with something. Um, <laughs> I look back now at, you know, I look at back the last four years of my life and think, man, I, I, did, I had no idea what a paradigm shift was really was at that time. But, you know, at the time it was, it was pretty monumental and it eventually led to my being uh, dismissed, shall we say, from, from ministry with Calvert Chapel. Okay. And then is that when you went to Westminster Seminary? Yeah, my wife and I moved back to the U.S. from the mission field in 2000, uh, and I started Westminster in 2001 and graduated in 2004, and that's when we moved up to the Northwest to plant uh, Exile Presbyterian. And then you were the pastor there from 2004 until spring of this year, correct? Yes, I was ordained uh, in 2004, end of 2004, and I resigned uh, this past June. Okay, let's let's discuss what led you to reconsider your Reformed uh, framework. You've described this in your article on Called Communion as a, a two-stage process. So the first stage was a crisis involving sola scriptura, and the second was centered around, centering around sola fide. So let's discuss these um, each in turn. You refer in the article to the very day in 2008 that you were first confronted with the claims of the Catholic Church. What exactly happened that day? Uh, well, as you probably know, you were uh, a part of that day, <laughs> even though I didn't know who you were. Uh, a friend of mine from seminary, uh, we graduated together, uh, sent an article that you wrote, Brian, on your old blog mm-hmm. um, to me and to Mike Horton and Daryl Hart and um, maybe a couple of other students or professors, I'm not sure, 
um, it was an article in which you were um, kind of engaging with, with this friend of mine and something mm -hmm. he had written, and you were making an, uh, an argument that I had not considered before um, concerning authority and concerning the fact that any so-called distinction between sola scriptura and solo scriptura is just an illusion. And, you know, your, your illustration was even, even in confessional reform contexts, mm -hmm. and not just evangelical contexts, but even in confessional reform contexts, the way authority works is, is, is similar to shooting an arrow at the wall and then painting the target around it. Mm -hmm. And that was um, very, uh, very disturbing for me. Because if you know anything about a lot of Westminster, California graduates, you know, we, uh, we take very seriously the, the church and, mm -hmm. and the importance of confessional documents and catechisms and creeds and, and proper um, ordained ecclesial authority. And, and so the idea that I was just being lumped in with uh, no creed but Christ evangelicals uh, was, was pretty irritating. <laughs> it was annoying. Uh, and that's really what what got the ball rolling, um, because I just couldn't get that get that thought out of my mind. And uh, you know, I needed to you know, excuse me, my voice is a bit hoarse today. Hmm. Um, I needed to to sort of investigate that more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think I read some more stuff. I bought some books. Uh, I, I got a hold of Keith Matheson's uh, The Shape of Sola Scriptura, in, which is sort of the um, sort of the official word, as it were, uh, at least among contemporary writers, uh, on the difference between a Reformed understanding of, of uh, Scripture's authority versus a, a sort of Anabaptist or Evangelical one. Right. Well, I assume you ran this Catholic argument uh, by other Reformed leaders and maybe your other faculty from some seminary. How did they respond to it, and, and why did you find these answers inadequate or unsatisfying? Well, my first my, my first uh, response to it was the same as it seems everyone's, and you know you can probably go on your old blog and find that article we're talking about mm -hmm. and find my uh, response. Uh, it's weird that this entire um, this entire journey I kind of hate that word journey, but Catholics use it. I'm you know right. <laughs> trying to be a team player here. Uh, <laughs> But it's all sort of part of the public domain, you know, it's weird. But the, the response by me initially and by everyone else was what I've come to understand is called the tu quoque, mm -hmm. uh, which, which means you also or you too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my initial response was, yeah, but unless you're a, a cradle Catholic, uh, you came to the Catholic Church as an adult, um, and, and so you don't have bragging rights over me. Uh, because you were using your intellect, your investigatory skills and, and power of reasoning and all of that. And so why do you get to brag that you're submitting to real authority and you're accusing me of um, simply submitting to myself when you've gone through the same process I, I went through? And that was, that was my initial reaction. Um, and it took me a while, actually, to understand the response that you and others were giving and why the two are not the same, why we're, why, why we're not in the same intellectual boat. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd read the things you guys would say, and, and it's still, it's, it just took a while to really 
click. Mm -hmm. uh, it took a while to really resonate. But that was the response of, of, of people that I would run this stuff by in the Reformed world. It was that they do the same thing. Why, why are they faulting us for supposedly only submitting to ourselves when, in fact, they're doing nothing different? So the response is generally, there is no other option except for shooting the arrow and then drawing the target around it. Yeah, I think that I don't think they would concede uh, that, because a lot a lot of guys would say. Some, you know, some of the guys I talked to would say, "Listen, I didn't believe everything that the three forms of unity or the Westminster Standards taught, and then submit to a church that upheld them. Mm -hmm. um, I found a church that got the gospel right, and you know, I had to, there was a lot of stuff in those documents that I didn't necessarily." you know, wholeheartedly affirm at first, but, you know, it came later. And so there, there is a kind of veneer of submission there. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have conceded that we all shoot the arrow at the wall, but they would have said that we all, um, before we submit to any ecclesial authority, we, we need to work out certain things on our own beforehand. And the Catholic convert is no different than the guy who becomes a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward then two years. In October of 2010, you were appointed the prosecutor for the Pacific Northwest Presbytery of the PCA in the Lightheart trial. And uh, this trial, for our listeners, uh, concerned the question whether Lightheart's theological views conflicted with the theological system expressed by the Westminster Standards, which Lightheart had vowed to uphold so long as he administered in the, the PCA. The trial was held uh, in June of 2011, is that correct? Yes. Okay, and the Standing Judicial Commission reached its verdict in October of that same year, just over a year ago. So how in your mind could you function as a prosecutor upholding the Westminster Standards while you were wrestling with the very authority of those standards? Yeah, that, I'm glad you're asking this because, you know, when I initially resigned, or at least when it became public, this was one of the things that that a lot of people were asking. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I honestly don't think, um, I don't think it's that difficult to answer. It, it's not as if the minute my view on, let's say, justification or baptism changes. And by June of 2011, I, I wouldn't have said my views had, had changed. Mm -hmm. They, they were, they were, I was, I was wrestling still. Mm. But, but, <clears throat> Now my views have changed, right. but it doesn't mean the Westminster Standards suddenly say something different. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, since my view has shifted, therefore um, the Westminster Standards mean something different than they mean they meant before. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not Peter Lightheart was uh, in conformity with the standards is a completely different issue than whether or not I was wrestling with whether the formulations in those standards uh, were correct. So, um, you know, if I had been in June of 2011 uh, where Peter Lightheart was, I, I would have resigned because I still think to this day that uh, any minister in the PCA or the OPC or the URC or whatever confessionally reformed denomination you're, we're talking about, I think that that minister is, is bound by his vow to uphold the standards of that church. And if you don't, then you should quit. And, and that's what I did. And, and, and that's what I think Peter ought to have done. 
uh, because at least in my reading and the reading of many other people, uh, his his views simply were not reformed. They weren't recognizably confessional. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that I was struggling with these things, um, what, what, you know, that was something that was going on in my own mind, in my own heart. But, um, you know, it doesn't mean that I, I was somehow lobbing him softballs. You know, right. somebody, any of the, this is part of the public domain as well. Anybody can go and read the, the, the transcripts of the trial, uh, especially my opening and closing arguments. Um, I mean, you, you you would be hard pressed to find uh, another another guy in the PCA who would have uh, who would have pressed him harder on, on the matters that were un, under dispute. Mm -hmm. So that that's what I'd say about that. So you would say that at that time, say June of 2011, even though you were wrestling internally with the authority of the standards, you remained committed to upholding your vow regarding those standards. Is that right? We, yeah, c kind of the posture I was taking. Uh, and this, this kind of came back to bite me a bit, or at least it was, it was misunderstood, easily misunderstood um, afterwards. But the posture I was taking at the time was, as long as I'm Presbyterian, I'm going to be full-on Presbyterian um, until the day I'm not. Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't want to slowly, over the course of a year... Uh, become less and less Presbyterian and more and more something else right. to the point where I just sort of, uh, you know, resign and it, it's, it was a foregone conclusion. It was more a thing of when I preach, when I as long as as long as as long as I think that there is is truth in the uh, the confessional reformed paradigm, then I'm going to preach full on like a Presbyterian and I'm going to act like a Presbyterian. I'm going to prosecute Lightheart like a pres Presbyterian, um, you know, and then the, when the moment comes when I, I just simply cannot do it, then I'm, then I'm going to not do it anymore. But I, I don't, I just personally don't have a lot of respect for people who um, are one thing technically on paper, they're labeled one thing, but deep down there's something else. And when they open their mouths publicly or when they write, um, you know, they betray the thing they're supposed to be. I'm just... I'm just not wired that way. Right. So my, my thing was, look, as long as I'm in the PCA um, and as long as I, I can in good conscience preach what I'm supposed to preach, I'm going to preach it full on. And I'm going to prosecute this case like I was appointed to full on. And um, I'm going to just be a 100% Presbyterian until the day I'm not one anymore. Do you think the case against Lightheart should now be reconsidered? Should he be retried with a different prosecutor? Um, no. I I'm not sure what the SJC, the Standing Judicial Commission of the PCA, is going to eventually rule on this. Um, but I don't see what, what the point of that would be because uh, I think the merit of the case should be judged on on the actual content of the arguments on both sides and i think if you look at you know as prosecutor other than cross exam other than you know uh calling witnesses of my own and cross-examining the other ones uh most of what i do is is in the opening argument and the closing argument um and i don't think you can read those transcripts and conclude that 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 there was any kind of corruption or any kind of uh compromise on my part.
I mean, the mood in the room was, was chilly. Uh, the mood in the room was anything but cordial. Uh, at no point did, did uh, Peter himself or his, his defense team kind of wink and nod uh, across the aisle at me and say, you know, hey, thanks for going easy on us. Right. Uh, if anything, uh, it, it was the opposite. And there are still <laughs> kind of fractured relationships as a result of that. So uh, I, I don't think retrying him with a different prosecutor would be, would be a, a good idea. In what way do you think that your involvement, if, if any, with the Federal Vision controversy, do you think that affected your decision to become Catholic in any way? No, um, I, because my, my, uh, my path was just different from a lot of other people's. A lot of guys I, I've talked to kind of came into the Catholic Church out of Reform theology via, let's say, N.T. Wright or, right. or, or Peter Lightheart or James Jordan or the different Federal Vision guys. Um, you know, they sort of gain an appreciation for, for them, and then that, for what, whether it ought to have done or not, it, it um, made them more sympathetic towards Rome. But my, my, my path was just different. You know, coming from Westminster, California, um, you know, I had a, a, a very strong suspicion, uh, you know, against those guys, against right. N.T. Wright, against Lightheart. Uh, at no point was I sympathetic to the federal vision. Um, you know, so it was sort of, it really was sort of going from sort of a, a staunchly reformed, non-evangelical, non-federal visionist to being Catholic. Hmm. And um, there really wasn't any point during which the, the federal vision guys were a part of that other than the fact that um, I had to try, I had to prosecute Peter. Um, so I was obviously reading a lot of their stuff at that time, but, but like I said earlier, I was never really interested in being, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of hyphenated Calvinist, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I never wanted to be a sort of Calvinist slash Catholic or, or some sort of amalgam of the two. Um, you know, so even when I would see stuff in their writings that I thought, oh, you know, you, you're making a, a, you're making a valid point biblically here. Um, but it was never, it was never on the table for me to, to just, instead of being a Catholic, I'll just be kind of like a sympathetic federal visionist type guy and, uh, you know, quote the Pope, you know, in my sermons because mm -hmm. I'm trying to be ecumenical or something. I, I just not wired that way, I guess. You mentioned just now N.T. Wright, um, in respect of the question concerning Gentile membership within the New Covenant Church. Uh, Peter remarks that Gentiles should not be saddled with standards that the Old Covenant Jews themselves couldn't bear. And in previous times, you viewed this remark as evidence against covenantal monism, uh, the new perspective on Paul and so forth, since satisfying mere boundary marker conditions does not seem overly burdensome. How do you now understand this remark of St. Peter? Yeah, um, Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. Right. Um, you know, I think I, I think I, I think that there's more to what Peter is saying than simply circumcision. Um, that that was the the issue that brought the council together there in Acts. Um, there were certain Christians, certain believers among the among the Jews who were saying, unless you uh, unless you receive circumcision, 
you cannot be a, a full member of the church. And, and so they came together to discuss it. Um, and, w and what I was saying, you know, in the thing that you're, you're, you're quoting, I was kind of getting at the idea that, you know, how hard is it to be circumcised? I mean, how hard is it to still be circumcised? If you were a Jewish person circumcised on the eighth day, and now you're 30 years old, like, how burdensome can that be? You're mm -hmm. just, you know, continuing to be what you are. And how hard is it not to eat pork chops, you know? But then I, I think that there, um, I think that that issue of circumcision and dietary restrictions, it's it's sort of an abbreviation for a whole lot more. Hmm. And um, what helped me understand this a bit better was reading uh, Scott Hahn's um, doctoral dissertation that was published, I think, by Yale. It's called Kinship by Covenant. Right. And he um, he goes into some detail about the fact that there's this pattern uh, in uh, salvation history with respect to Israel in the Old Testament, according to which... Um, Israel sins, and God heaps laws on them, and then Israel sins again, and God heaps more laws on them as kind of penances. Um, and so the, 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 by the time you get to the book of Acts, um, the Mosaic system wasn't the, the much simpler system that you uh, would have expected in the, you know, the book of Exodus, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't as much a, a filial system. Uh, and, and familial arrangement, um, but it was much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, a suzerainty arrangement, uh, you know, a, a master-slave relationship. That's what Israel's relationship to God had devolved into mm -hmm. um, because of the fact that, that they would sin and God would add, add more restrictions and then they would sin again and he would add more to sort of burden them, uh, in, in, you know, by way of, of penance. And so I think that, you know, what, what Peter's saying there when he says that we were not, nor our fathers, able to bear uh, this yoke, uh, I think he's referring to a lot more than just circumcision uh, and, and a lot more than just refraining from eating certain foods. Mm -hmm. But it's the entire book of the law, as the book of Deuteronomy ha had come to be called. Mm -hmm. The entire Levitical and, and Deuteronomic system of, of sacrifices and offerings and annual pilgrimages and, and everything else that came with it, um, that certainly, I think Peter had that in mind. He may have had more in mind as well, but I think he had uh, at least that much in mind when he made that remark. And and so that's kind of how I would look at it now. In the fall of last year, 2011, you started writing more on your blog about the superiority of the New Covenant in relation to the Old Covenant, especially concerning the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant and about love as the fulfillment of the law. And it seems to me that here, at that time, you were beginning to see a different paradigm regarding sola fide. So maybe you could describe that process for us. Well, actually, um, I don't think I was saying anything different in um, last fall than I, I've kind of been saying um, for years. In fact, uh, one of my... One of my favorite things I did as a student at Westminster was a directed research project with uh, David Van Drunen that was called A Theology of the Spirit. And I wrote a big 50-page paper. Uh, you know, I took a semester and, um, and, and wrote a big paper on, on the, that very topic, on the superiority of the New Covenant to the Old, on the need to 
give greater expression in reform circles uh, to the the you know the the sea change that happened uh, you know in in the Christ events and especially the day of Pentecost and and that we we can easily flatten out redemptive history with a with a you know an overly emphasized covenant of works covenant of grace paradigm which is the reform paradigm mm-hmm. which says that um, the covenant of works was given in the garden um, and then once man fell God made a covenant of grace in Genesis 3 and so everything from Genesis 3 on is is grace and everything from Genesis 3 on is just um, different administrations of that one covenant of grace and you know and so I was man I, I was uh, I was probably really annoying back then because I was constantly hounding my professors and, and uh, fellow students uh, about this issue of the new covenant and about the issue of, of the spirit and and the spirit, you know, replacing Torah for the believer under the new covenant. Uh, and so I was, you know, I was I was saying all that stuff back then. I was I was reading uh, a lot of um, Ritterboss and Voss and the different biblical theologians. Uh, I read some Gaffin. Um, I really appreciated Gordon Fee, uh, <laughs> of all people. Uh, he's a Pentecostal, I think. Right. Uh, but he wrote a big book called God's Empowering Presence. It, it was sort of an exegesis uh, of all the, the uh, Pauline uses of pneuma, of, of spirits, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, and Douglas Moo what was huge for me. Uh, his Romans commentary, as well as other things he wrote. Um, so that's that's always been there. It's been there since probably 2002, even 2001. But, you know, I think ironically, uh, all of that came to its full flowering uh, and fruition in in the, the Catholic faith. Uh, I didn't, you know, I never would have expected that. But but the more the more I thought about it, especially once I'd start looking into Catholicism, the more I started to realize that you know the two what they call the the uh, duplex beneficium in in, in in reform circles the double benefit of of uh, of the gospels justification and sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got this forensic declaration uh, from the courtroom of heaven over the sinner once for all, um, you know, declaring him righteous based on the imputation of an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Um, and that's justification. And then you've got sanctification, the progressive uh, growth in grace and growth in, in holiness that happens throughout our lives that's, you know, that's always imperfect but but nevertheless necessary. And But I started, especially after having been introduced to a Catholic paradigm, started realizing that those two, those two things are really strange bedfellows. Uh, they're, they don't fit together all that well. Um, I think if you really understand the, 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 the latter, if you really understand the, the sanctification, and if I took the things I was saying at, when I was at Westminster about the new covenant and the Holy Spirit and all that, if I, if I, if I took those things and, and, kind of teased out the logical ramifications, it rendered imputation of alien righteousness unnecessary. How so? Explain that if you would. Because if under the new covenant, God does what the law could not do, and I'm just kind of 
summarizing Romans 8, 1 through 4, if God does in Christ what the law could not do, because the law could only empower, but not, or could only command, but not empower, uh, but God does this ironic kind of runaround, you know, this ironic circumventing of Moses altogether to accomplish what the law intended all along, namely um, bringing about love of God and neighbor, which fulfills the law. If God can do that in Christ by the Spirit, to the point that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, then why do you need imputation of alien righteousness? If God can accomplish that by the Spirit under the new covenant, then what's, what's the need for this, um, this forensic um, declaration of pardon based upon the imputation of someone else's righteousness if Romans 8, 1 through 4 is true? And then you start thinking about um, you know, different passages in, in both Testaments that, that refer to people as, as righteous. You know, I, I remember you know, <clears throat> tossing and turning, thinking about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, because it says in Luke that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, okay, this, okay does this mean sinless? Well, no, it can't mean sinless because because no one is sinless. So they, it can't mean that they were sinless, but 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 somehow God's able to to refer to them as righteous. Well, if they had died with that description of them being true, would they go to heaven? Well, the answer has to be yes, of course. Why? why what good is it to say that they're righteous and, and and blameless, walking in all the commandments of the Lord continually, if if they're also damned? Right, and so if they if they were in that condition, if God could say that about them, and it was true enough about them that they were actually saved, then as a reformed person, I would have to say that this righteousness that they enjoy is the result of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and not a result of their own righteousness. But then you look at the actual words of the text, and it, and you think, well, gosh, why, Luke sure did a good job of robbing God of glory then, because. He had a perfect opportunity to say Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before the Lord because of the uh, because of their proleptic participation in the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to them by faith alone. But instead of saying that, he explicitly attributes their righteousness to their own walking in God's commands. And of course, anyone would have to say, Reformed or Catholic, that that it's only by the Spirit that that could be true. That, you know, it's not their own righteousness from the law or their own righteousness that they sort of mustered up from themselves, but this was clearly spirit wrought. And so if all that's true, then where's imputation? Where is this forensic declaration of acquittal from the courtroom of heaven? And, 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 and that just brings it back to the bigger question of, is that really what God requires? It, it's an axiom in Reformed uh, soteriology that God demands absolute perfection and that no one can be saved unless he is absolutely, spotlessly, blamelessly perfect. And since none of us can, uh, that's the major premise, minor premise, since none of us can attain that, uh, it, it must be given to us from someone else who could, namely Jesus. But, you know, you look at verses like that, like Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and loads of others, and you just think, gosh, 
these just don't fit well with that paradigm. If I, if I were Luke and if I were writing a gospel and if I had that paradigm that I just described, um, the need for perfection and therefore the need for imputation, I just wouldn't have said that about these guys. You know, I just would never have described them that way. Um, it's just not the kind of thing someone with a confessional reform paradigm would ever think to say. So you saw that as fitting uh, better into the Catholic paradigm? How, do you, how did you see it as fitting better into the Catholic paradigm? Well, because of the stuff I was saying a minute ago about Romans 8, um, the Catholic paradigm and, and my understanding of, of Augustine um, is exactly in line with this, um, is that God by the Spirit um, pours out or infuses into us, our hearts, uh, His own love. Um, and the love of God fulfills the law. Jesus said it explicitly, Paul said it explicitly, and James said it explicitly, and Peter and John say it implicitly, but but there's no question that, that they all agree on this point, that uh, the law of God is fulfilled by our spirit-wrought love of God and neighbor. And that, to me, is how you make sense of the parents of John the Baptist being righteous and walking in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord continually. They either have to be sinless and impeccable, but that is biblically impossible for them, or it has to be the result of imputation, but that's not only not what Luke says, but Luke explicitly ascribes their righteousness to something else altogether. And so the Catholic paradigm comes in and just says, you know, duh, like this is, this is a, an exact illustration of the kind of thing we're talking about when we describe the, the spirit, the gospel, and the role of the new covenant. So this idea from, let's say, the Council of Trent's teaching about uh, the infusion of sanctifying grace, of, of, of charity in the heart, uh, Romans 5.5, 5, that idea explained these other passages that you're talking about, love fulfilling the law, and the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Yes, yes. Um, that, and, and to be fair, um, Reformed theology believes in, in the infusion of, of, uh, of grace. Um, they insist that it is discussed under the rubric of sanctification and never justification, because justification is it, it, it's extra nos, it's outside of us, it, it comes um, from without. But it always issues forth in reform circles, uh, it, it, it issues forth in um, internal, internally wrought, you know, spiritual infusion of grace into us. Um, but, but the point I'm making is that you have such, you have so little in the New Testament that, that even can be used as your, as your springboard to discuss imputation. Uh, you've got, you know, Romans four and you've got Galatians two and three. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but really you don't find a reform, uh, an explicitly reformed articulation of imputation of alien righteousness anywhere, even in Paul, outside of Romans and Galatians. And you don't find it in Peter, James, John, Jude, or Jesus. And, and, and the verses... But I would have said, if you'd pointed this out to me 
you know, three years ago, four years ago, I would have said, but so what? How many times does God have to tell you something right. before you believe it? It doesn't matter. Paul was the one who was, you know, chosen by God to give the most robust articulation of the gospel. Uh, and you can find this, his, this stuff implicitly elsewhere. Um, but in Paul, it, it's explicit and, and, you know, that's, that should be enough for us. But then the more I started looking at it, the more I realized that, uh, you know, there is another way to read those passages in, in Galatians 2 and 3 and Romans 4. Um, you know, sometimes Protestants have this idea that, that uh, well, you know, the Catholics concede Paul to us and we'll concede Jesus to them, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, people have asked, you know, so almost implying, you know, so since you've come to disbelieve what Paul said about imputation, how do you, how do you reckon that with this? And, and my response is always, no, you're, you're begging the question by assuming that Paul means by what he said what you understand. But there are ways, uh, very, very natural ways, of reading uh, those passages in Galatians and Romans in ways that don't demand at all uh, imputation of alien righteousness. I, I get this all the time when people bring up uh, Philippians 3, where Paul says, not having my own righteousness, which is eknamu from mm-hmm. the law, but, but having um, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And I think just about every Protestant I've talked to about this, uh, about that passage, assumes that I don't believe that. Hmm. That, you know, you're a Catholic now, so you believe that you have your own righteousness, which is from the law. But Paul is saying he doesn't have that one. He has one that comes as a gift through faith in Christ. But, of course, the response is no one, not Catholics, not anybody believes that our righteousness is a righteousness of my own which comes from the law. That's explicitly what the Catholic paradigm denies because of the superiority of the new covenant to the old. Our righteousness can be everything Paul says it is in Philippians 3 and in Galatians and in Romans without imputation being necessary. You mentioned uh, these objections. Um, What would be the most common objection or objections you've been receiving uh, from Reformed folks to the biblical case you've been making uh, for the Catholic way of understanding justification? Well, a lot of it comes down to to paradigms. And, um, you know, for some reason, uh, some people are able to more easily than others step outside of one paradigm into another. Now, on one level, it's impossible to, to really see anything from anyone else's perspective because we're not anyone else but ourselves. Um, but you need to, if, if two people are going to engage, a Catholic and a Protestant, in, uh, in a discussion about justification, um, at the very least, both of them need to be able to uh, accurately sum up the other's position hmm. and 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 they both need to be aware of the the way that paradigms are functioning in the way they argue and, and until you are it, it's just futile it, it's just it's just hopeless and what i've what i've seen a lot is either an unwillingness or or an unawareness of of this this issue of of broader interpretive paradigms and so most of the objections that have come up uh, from the lips or the keyboards of, uh, of Protestants and Reformed people in particular are objections that presuppose 
the the very the very paradigmatic axioms that that make their theology work and so they'll say well since god you know since god demands absolute perfection from us how on earth do you expect to get to heaven as a catholic it, you know mm-hmm. if uh you know if you've still got venial sins on your on your uh on your account when you die or things like this that that sort of presuppose the need for the demand for absolute perfection um according to the law again for reform people um there's a very forensic and 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 letter of the law sort of way of uh, of understanding god's demands and just about every um objection that i've come across is assuming the very thing that needs to be proven uh it's 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 often very very circular and it's it's really hard to get people to step back for a moment and say look at as long as you're operating under these assumptions here um everything you're saying is internally consistent and makes sense but it's those assumptions that you're operating with that you that are just so basic that you don't feel like you need to argue for them it's those assumptions that i'm trying to call into question because i i'm i'm working from a different set of assumptions and so let's as much as it's possible to do step back from those assumptions and examine the broader paradigms to see which one of them provides the most explanatory value for the actual biblical data would you say that that particular problem right there failing to see the paradigmatic quality of the of the disagreement would you say that that lies at the heart of the of the catholic and protestant disagreement concerning justification um yes uh, it's not the only thing because there are um there are texts that need to be exegeted um there are definitions of words like you know dikaiao mm-hmm. uh and dikaiosune ju- justify and justification righteousness um that need to be you know need to be hashed out and and discussed but even 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 in those discussions paradigms are in play because there's an assumption on the part of um of most protestants that uh we get to the meaning of words and you've talked a lot about this Brian mm-hmm. um simply in, in, in a, by way of of the lexicon that all we have to do is uh is is figure out what um greek koine greek speakers and readers in the first century thought a word meant and and that is just simply how you get at what paul meant when he used it and that's not a theologically neutral assumption either mm. um but and so even when you're dealing with not with the macro but with the micro and you're looking at individual texts and what they mean um there are still hermeneutical uh paradigm issues in play and they're so hard to they're, they're so hard to see if you've not been forced to look at them mm-hmm. i mean, i remember reading your article on the um tradition in the lexicon mm-hmm in which you kind of say look at um there you know, the 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 church is like a family and and you might be able to sit at my dinner table as a fly on the wall and listen to the discussion between my wife and kids and understand the words but not know what we're talking about and if you don't know what we're talking about it's not because you don't know english it's right. because you're just not privy to the 
years and years of, of inside jokes and all that that make up our family and the way we speak. And the church is like that, and, but it's been around for 2,000 years. Um, but when I first, like when I first heard that argument, I just thought, huh, like I would never in a million years have, have, have considered that. Really? Because I remember personally going toe to toe with you saying, look, words have meanings, Brian. Justification has a meaning. It's not, you can't just, it's not a wax nose. You can't just make it mean whatever you want. Um, the word had a meaning in the ears uh, of the people who heard Paul preach and the eyes of the people who read his words when he wrote Romans. And what it meant to them is what it means. And the job of the exegete and the theologian is to determine as best as possible, using all the data and lexicography at our disposal, um, what, what, what he meant when he said it. And I had, it never would have occurred to me in a million years that I was making uh, anything but an obvious and neutral statement mm-hmm. in saying that. But then when I'm told, that's actually not a neutral statement, you're presupposing certain things that are, you know, in dispute, you know, it's like, oh, wow, okay. Um, so now I need to step back from that claim and examine the, the, the major premise that led to that conclusion and whether or not that's, uh, that's a, a good premise, hmm. but no one, no one thinks this way unless they're forced to. Hmm. That that's why they're that's why they're presuppositions. That's why they're properly basic because we just don't think to question them until someone comes along and does. Hmm. Speaking of the church as a family and the tradition, did the church fathers did reading the church fathers have a, a role in your transition from Reformed to Catholic? Uh, yes, not not I think as much as as they did for other guys I've talked to and, and stories I've I've heard. Um, you know, I, I was I was never into the patristic writers at all when I when, especially in seminary. I remember being so bored in ancient church with Doctor Godfrey, <laughs> just because I thought you know these guys are kind of idiots. You know they, they don't they're so they don't know anything and and. You know, they had these wacky ideas, and, and uh, they didn't even understand, uh, you know, imputation of alien righteousness. So I kind of don't care. Let, let's, like, skip ahead to the 16th century when, when things start really rolling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when, when I started reading Catholic claims about the fathers that, uh, you know, because the big, the big Protestant take on the fathers is, and I think it's a very convenient tactic. Um, I'm, maybe I'm being too cynical because I don't want to question the motives of the people who, who say this, but mm-hmm. the, the standard line is, oh, look, the fathers are a mixed bag. They're not some monolithic, you know, uh, univocal group of people who, who just all said the same thing and it all agrees with Rome, but they were all over the place. Um, sometimes they were right on, sometimes they were, they were completely, you know, out to lunch. Um, but you can't lump them all together and and turn the word tradition into a word with a capital T at the beginning and, and somehow make it all, uh, you know, make it all sound alike. Um, but nevertheless, you know, hearing Catholic claims about the fathers that they, why they, while there was diversity on certain things, there 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 is a pretty significant host of issues about which they were unanimous, um, and, and they were always unanimous. Uh, in favor of what is now 
the fully orbed Catholic position as opposed to a Protestant one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of jarring. Uh, and then hearing that n- none of them taught um, the the reformed understanding of, of imputation w- was a problem. I remember having having beers with a friend of mine, uh, old seminary friends, and asking him, he's a pastor too, um, hey, if... If the early church fathers, if none of them taught the imputation of alien righteousness, would that bother you? And he said, oh, yes. Hmm. And I said, can you name any that did? And he said, no. And I said, so are you going to go home and just scour the, you know, the 37 volumes of whatever it is of of the fathers to find that? Doesn't that, like, are are you going to lose sleep over over that? And he said, not really. Hmm. Um. But to me, it, it, it was it was significantly troublesome. Uh, but it wasn't like, because I've never been a historian, and, 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 and I've always just been more interested in systematics and, and exegetical theology. The role the fathers played was just like, oh, great, you know, it's like you've been you've been hitting me from all these other angles, and now you're going to pull out this, you know, this silver bullet thing over here. It's like, oh, great. Now, so now the fathers were all Catholics. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so you finally made the decision to become Catholic at some point, and, uh, or, and made it in a way that's uh, at least leaning in that direction. And before you officially announced anything, apparently you, you traveled to visit some well-known Reformed figures to discuss the Catholic question. Why don't you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I... Uh, I, I approached the session of my church, which means the the elders, the council of elders, uh, along with the associate pastor, and, and back in December of last year, and said, "Hold on," and said, "You know, look, I, I'm asking for a sabbatical." Um, You've expressed openness to the idea of sabbaticals for ministers in the past. You know, it, it's time for if, the, if you know, it makes sense to do it now because I've been doing this for a while. And but I said, but one of the reasons why, in addition, in addition to f- finishing a book that I was trying to write, uh, one of the reasons why I, I'm asking for this is because I've been struggling with the claims of the Catholic Church, and I'd like to take some time to really dedicate. Um, you know, period of study because I, I've been trying to figure this stuff out on my own, uh, on my own time, and it's been at that time it had been uh, three and a half years or so, and I am not getting anywhere. And so I'd like to really spend some time and, and maybe even travel around and talk to some people. You know, and so they were, you know, obviously very um, surprised uh, and concerned, and they said, "Yes, you know." We will pay for you to go anywhere you need to go uh, and talk to anybody you you need to talk to. And so um, I, I flew down twice to California to, to spend time with uh, Mike Horton, David Van Drunen, and, and Steve Baugh, who was my uh, Greek professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I spoke with anyone else down there, but that was I, – I went down for two different trips um, – to, to to speak with those guys. And of course this was, you know, just horrible because you know, these are guys who mentored me. Mike 
wrote the foreword for my first book, and mm -hmm. you know I've written for Modern Reformation, and uh, you know we've we've just he was he was one of the key witnesses in my in in my case against Peter Lightheart and up here in the Northwest. So he was not only basically disappointing him was one of the things I was dreading mm -hmm. because and I had I had other people you know fellow seminarians uh you know uh, alum alumni of Westminster who who would tell me you got to talk to Horton you got to talk to Horton and my my response was always I'm not going to talk to him unless I unless I really have to if I can if I can figure this out on my own before that I'd rather not just p commit professional suicide hmm. um by by disclosing to him that I'm I'm you know seriously considering catholicism but uh, you know and maybe that was a bad tactic on my part I don't know maybe I should have talked to him earlier I don't know but um spoke with him at great length um flew out to um Jackson Mississippi and and spent the day with Ligon Duncan who's a a uh, wonderful man did his PhD at, at Edinburgh in in patristics. Uh, wonderful minister and and, and uh, he's been a good friend and ally, helping me plant this church up here. Spent the day with him talking and and went over to uh, visit a, a good friend of mine from seminary in Annapolis on that same trip. Who's uh, who's a real good historian and and a, and a good systematician and a good friend. Um, and then I think the last trip I took was to Phoenix uh, to speak with James White, who I, I had not met before. Um, but he is sort of the kind of the guy, you know, in Calvinistic circles at least, uh, that you go to to find uh, answers about Rome. Mm -hmm. And so um, I flew out to Phoenix and, and spent uh, a few hours in his office um, kind of going back and forth. But you weren't convinced. No. <laughs> um, you know, it's what's frustrating is that it's try try as 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 you might. Uh, it's really hard to get people to to stop talking about all the reasons why the Catholic Church is false. And start talking about why Protestantism is true, um, because, and I even, you know, I even made this clear to, to James at the beginning of our discussion. I said, "Look, at um, if all if all we're going to do is 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 you sit here and tell me this this general council uh, contradicted that general council or." This pope did that, or there was a break in the succession line, you know, in, in the year 1400. Then you're just going to convince me to become Eastern Orthodox, and I, I I'm assuming that that would be also considered failure. And so I'd rather rather than talking about all the reasons why you think Rome's historical claims are spacious, um, I want you to make a positive case for how the Protestant paradigm and especially sola scriptura emerged in the immediately post-apostolic church. I want to know I want to know how it is that all the stuff that Paul taught the Corinthians by word of mouth about the Lord's table. Cuz he wrote a he wrote a couple chapters about it in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, but 
Um, but he also spent some significant time in Corinth and, and um, you know, obviously went into much greater detail teaching them about, about the Eucharist. Um, I want to know how it is that all of that oral teaching that Paul and all the rest of the apostles gave that was considered during their lifetime to be authoritative, because Paul says, and all Reformed people agree, that during the time of the apostles, sola scriptura wasn't operative because the word of God came by uh, word of mouth and epistle. Mm -hmm. But somehow, everybody knew, maybe through some microchip in the neck that was alert, went off the minute John the apostle died, that now we have to forget everything that the apostles taught us and just go by what they wrote. And so, how did that happen? How did the regulative principle of worship, for example, kick in um, when uh, the people who were still alive after all the apostles had died had loads and loads of hours of, of, of memory uh, uh, that the apostles had taught them things about worship, about communion? How did they know to immediately discount upon the death of the last apostle all the oral tradition that they had been given and, and, and go back to uh, a canon which, by the way, wasn't even decided yet. Right. Um, because that, to me, is the burden that, um, that the Reformed Protestant has. It's not enough, and I know guys have made a, you know, a, a cyber living on... Um, poking holes in the Catholic claim. And, you know, that's, you can, that's, I mean, on a cursory glance, it's, it's, it's easy to do, uh, especially because the claim sounds so preposterous and audacious when you first hear it. But that's not enough. Uh, and, that, and that's what I, that's what I've tried to tell people. You're just going to make me a, either an agnostic or an Eastern Orthodox um, if all you're going to do is, is, is tell me that um, papal infallibility is false or that the Marian dogmas weren't held in, you know, from early on, that that's not that's not sufficient. What you need to do is make a positive case for the uniquely Protestant um, formulations of of ecclesial authority, and it's impossible. It can't be done, and, and that's why I was unconvinced by the guys I went and talked to. It's not they're all smarter than me. Every one of them is is head and shoulders more brilliant. They're, they've all got PhDs, or at least most of them do. Um, they they know their history better than I ever will. Um, Steve Baugh is a, a better exegete with a better command of Greek than I'll ever have. Um, but if something's true, there just aren't good arguments against it. Hmm. And that's the, that that's kind of what I came out of that sabbatical realizing is there's got to be a reason why. All these guys who are way smarter than I am didn't didn't have good arguments against these claims I'm I'm trying to trying to make. It's not because they're just not smart enough to really understand me, or you know I'm I'm just more brilliant than they are. It, no, it's that um, when something's true, even the smartest guy in the world isn't going to be able to come up with a very good argument against it. Because truth just always wins. Instead of Rob Bell's love wins, you have truth wins now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one thing to reject sola scriptura and sola fide, but it's quite another to embrace the whole 
uh, of the Catholic faith, uh, the claims of the Catholic Church about herself and the uniquely Catholic dogmas such as the Marian dogmas, purgatory, the sacrifice of the Mass, and so on. So how did you finally make this decision to become Catholic and embrace all of that, um, especially knowing that it would cost you your job and involve leaving your congregation? Well, there was never any other option. Um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to um, you know why why become Catholic? I mean, I've had people like when I have discussions with people about just the soteriology, um, they say you don't have to, dude. You don't have to stop being reformed. You can be like a Douglas Moo type guy. You can. You can um, you can have a robust view of the spirit and still be reformed. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to quit. You're you're making this rash decision. You know, which for me is funny because like rash decision. Wow, because this took me forever to right. do. Um, but um, when when you look at the 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 authority claims, they're just. It just it it just became clear to me, I guess, that if Jesus founded a church, an actual visible church, you know, with a P.O. box, you know, so to speak, one you could find it. You can say there it is, not there, but there. Hmm. Um, and if that church, uh, first of all, if he did that, um, he he would have he 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 never would have instituted sola scriptura as the only infallible way of of, of guiding that church because he wasn't an idiot. And, um, you know, that in the same way that our founding fathers didn't just write a constitution, mail it to everybody and say, all right, good luck. But they put in place other branches of government whose job it was to, you know, interpret it and execute it and all that. Um, and so it's like, okay, if Jesus founded a church, he would have, he would have, he just would have set it up in such a way that, that you can actually find it. And the the only way to, to to do that is not, you know, whoever has the right interpretation of the Bible is is is, is the church, but it's whoever was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by Jesus, uh, and an apostle is the bishop who you submit to. That's just how if you're going to found a visible church at all, that's just kind of how you do it. That that's why we have you know presidents in this country who succeed other presidents, and there are ways of knowing who the president is, even mm-hmm. if other people stand up and claim to be the president. Um, but then, even more, because that's, you know, you can still be Eastern Orthodox and accept all of that. But, um, you know, just, what happens when there's a tie? You know, what, hap- what, if, what if you've got six apostles against six? Let's say Jesus is gone, and, and the apostles are all still ministering, and, and they divide against each other six against six. Should Jesus have chosen an odd number of apostles so that that couldn't happen? No, he chose an even number. He certainly must have known that six, you know, that 12 divided by two comes out six against six. Well, then you'd kind of, you'd side with Peter, right? Wouldn't you? I mean, Peter was the leader. It's, I think it's clear in the New Testament that Peter was the leader of the apostles. You'd side with Peter if, if they were, but what if they're, you know, divided nine against three and Peter is one of the three? Well, I, I still think you side with with Peter and the two other guys, right? Um, and, and and that's just how that's just how it would have it, it's just how it would have been set up. I, I think just basic logic even hmm. uh, dictates that. 
But then you start looking at the claims of the Catholic Church about you know the Marian dogmas and the you know the papal infallibility and all the ecumenical councils, you know, and, and you kind of compare that to Eastern Orthodoxy, which is sort of, you know, gosh, Eastern Orthodoxy, you've got you've got the tradition, you've got the antiquity, uh, you've got the um, apostolic succession, mm -hmm. but you just don't have all the stuff that people hate. You know, you don't have the Pope, you don't have the the uh, Marian stuff to that same degree at least. Right. Um, but to me, it, it just became clear that if Jesus founded a church that was going to be identifiable and visible because of apostolic succession, it would have been a church that just would have continued to hold ecumenical councils every time it needed to. And it would have had a way in principle to distinguish between what is and what is not an ecumenical council. Hmm. Um, that's just how it would be. And, and moreover, it would be... Any church that Jesus founded that's still around after 2,000 years would just be as audacious as the Catholic Church is. It just would. I mean, Jesus was audacious. He ran around, you know, claiming all these things about himself and driving out the money changers and, and calling into question the entire uh, pharisaical tradition. I mean, he, he, he just walked around kind of th throwing his weight around, you know, in a, in a manner of speaking. Um, forcing people to, to reckon with who he was. And it seems to me that his body, his, his, his visible body, would, would be that way. Hmm. That it would say, you know what, I don't care if it's the year uh, you know, 1960, we're going to have an ecumenical council uh, because there's some stuff that we need to, to talk about and we're going to have one. And you can know it's an ecumenical council because, because Peter's successor... Um, is is uh, is presiding, or at least ratifying the, the the conclusions. So so, you know, how did I make the decision to to, you know, to become Catholic? It, it was almost like there is no other decision. There is no other option. Um, and it's like, yeah, okay. So I, I um, walked away from, uh, you know, my ministry and and all that, and that's been really hard. But it's like. I don't know. A lot of people have sacrificed a lot more than I have uh, for the truth. Uh, and as difficult as it has been, uh, you know, um, to me, it's it, 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 it just there's something there's just something unseemly about about uh, making too much out of out of a, a sacrifice that one makes for Christ when given what he's done for us. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's been tough and it still is, but um in the face of in the face of what is just so biblically obvious and historically compelling and philosophically necessary, um it, it just there was it's almost a no-brainer. When you announced on your blog your resignation from exile and the PCA, there were so many um, insulting and, and mean-spirited comments uh, that were left in your comeback, as you know. And in other public places, there were a number of uncharitable things that were said about you, so many blogs and so forth. I, I know that many Reformed pastors and uh, Reformed seminarians and, and laymen are listening to this podcast. Some would be strongly opposed to what you have done, and some would be on the other end of the spectrum, much more sympathetic, but not wanting to lose their careers or subject themselves to the kind of public scourging that you you experienced this spring. 
What would you say to Reformed persons, whether they're pastors or seminarians, um, who are also considering the Catholic claim? Um, well, you know, we all, Catholic, Reformed, whatever, uh, talk about sacrifice, and we talk about Christ's sacrifice, and we talk about cross-bearing, and we talk about the need to follow him and to uh, imitate him and... And to count the cost and, and, you know, and put your hand to the plow and all that stuff. And I, I remember thinking, you know, to myself, like, because there were, seriously, there were times when even, even like, before hitting send on my resignation letter to, to my session in the presbytery, I, I think I, I wrote the thing and left it sitting on my, on my screen for a whole day, wow. thinking like, there's got to be a way out of this. There's got to be, there's got to be a, a, like there's got to be an argument out there I can find or, or, or at least some rationale for, for not sending this. Um, because, you know, I, I, I don't have any other background. I don't have a career that I had before I was a pastor that I can just go back to. Um, there's, there's got to be some, you know, some other way. But I just remember thinking like, I, I, I will never be able to live with myself uh, if I if I don't do this. If I blink now um, and flinch at the prospect of, of paying a price for, for what I believe is true, then I'm just going to – the self-loathing is going to just, you know, go to a whole new level here because I'm never going to be able to look at myself in the mirror. Mm. And, and I think – uh, you know, that's what I'd say. I'd say, uh, look, I'm not going to candy coat it and say like, oh yeah, the minute you become a Catholic and receive the Eucharist, all your all of your sins go away and all of your desire for sin goes away and you immediately get all these job offers and all this. Um, no, that's not, that's not how it is. And, and I think any convert to Rome would say the same. But it's like, look, if you're not I mean, if you're even dabbling in, in in Catholic theology, then you've read a lot about sacrifice and redemptive suffering, and and our, our you know our suffering having significance because it's wedded to Christ's suffering. Um, well, now's the time to put up or shut up. You know, now's the time to um, to put your money where your mouth is. Hmm. If you if you think something's true, but you're not willing to to pay some measly price for it, for standing up for it, then you're, you're like, don't even know the basic gist of what Christianity is about in the first place, because that's what Christianity is. It's, uh, it's following Jesus. And last I checked, Jesus surrendered everything, um, and was handsomely rewarded in the resurrection. And we will be handsomely rewarded in the age to come and maybe not a minute sooner, but that's that's life. That's uh, that's semi-realized eschatology right there. <laughs> that's taking up our cross, right? Yeah, yeah. What are your plans for the future now? I understand that your second book will be uh, published shortly. Tell us about that. Yeah, I wrote a book called uh, "The Destiny of the Species," um, which you know, it, it's sort of a project. It's just the latest incarnation of a of a ongoing project that started when I was a brand new Christian and probably will never end. And that's trying to, trying to wrestle with, uh, the idea that we're exiles and pilgrims on the earth as Hebrews 11 says. Um, 
and, and this is this is just the latest um, attempt to articulate that. Uh, it, it's sort of taking Darwin's you know famous origin of species and um, twisting it a little bit and saying you know what it's not it's not um, it's not our origin ultimately that defines us. It's not our past that defines us. It's our future that defines us. We're not pushed. We're pulled. We're not driven. We're drawn. And so that's submitted to Wittfenstock, <laughs> and um, now it's got to go through, you know, copy editing and, and all of that. I'm hoping it'll be out. Look, I, I don't know when it's going to be out. Hopefully, hopefully within the next six months, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm working on a – I've submitted a proposal to another publisher um, sort of for a book kind of talking about the stuff we've talked about in this, in this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, just the kind of process of coming out of Protestantism into, into the Catholic Church. Um, and so that's, that's submitted, but it's just a proposal at this point. Um, and I'm teaching classes at the Catholic parish that I'm a member of. Uh, those started last night, the Wednesday evening uh, classes for adults. Hmm. Um, and I've got a couple of conferences lined up next year to speak at. So I'm kind of hoping that, that somehow... Um, Writing and teaching and, and speaking will translate into some form of income for uh, for my family, so that we could uh, you know we could make it doing that because I it's just what I've always done since I was a teenager is teach the Bible and right. if I can somehow avoid getting a job you know at McDonald's um, I will <laughs> happily but we'll see I have to I have to be willing to do that I have to be willing to say do you want fries with that. But I'm also pleading with God to not make me. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, for the interview. Appreciate yeah, it so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast from Called to Communion. Visit us on the web at calledtocommunion.com. Thank you for listening, and please remember to pray for the full visible unity of all those who endeavor to follow Christ.